Tonight we're continuing our study of Isaiah, and uh, we're moving into the next big section of Isaiah, beginning in Isaiah chapter 40. And there is a, a pretty major turn that happens between chapter 39 and 40. I mentioned last week, and I mentioned even toward the beginning when we we're kind of looking at the structure of Isaiah, that chapter 1 through 39 is very heavily focused on Assyria, and that that really near future impending threat from the Assyrian army. Now, there is some material in the first part of Isaiah that deals with Babylon. We saw in the oracles to the nations uh, that uh, one of the, in fact, the first nation in that list of nations was Babylon. So Isaiah was already seeing the threat that Babylon would be down the road. And the way that Isaiah 36 to 39 is arranged, where it's just a little bit out of chronological order, but for the purpose of tying Assyria to the Assyria part, and then 38 and 39 kind of introducing us to Babylon as the next new major foe. So Isaiah is kind of hinting at that turn toward from Assyria to Babylon. And when we move from Assyria to Babylon, we're in the, in the prophetic horizon. We're moving from Isaiah looking just a few years off to the threat of Assyria to over 100 years and the threat of Babylon. So it's a very near future and its fulfillment. And much of that about Assyria was fulfilled in Isaiah's day. But then you jump forward uh, about a hundred years to the rise of Babylon and its power. And for that reason, I think we talked about this toward the beginning of the study, but for that reason, some people think that, that there has to be a, a different Isaiah. And most, most of the, this opinion comes from more liberal critical scholarship that doesn't have a high regard for the supernatural nature of scripture uh, the inspiration of Scripture, uh, the divine trustworthiness of Scripture, the capability of a human prophet by divine revelation to foresee that far into the future. So they, and also just the shift, the major shift in themes and focus from Assyria to Babylon, as well as some differences in vocabulary and, and literary style. Some people think that the last part was written by someone else or even two other people. Um, but I think there are problems with that view. Obviously, one of the big problems of that view is that it denies the capability of a prophet of God being given revelation from God to see the future. Um, we, I believe the scriptures teach uh, that God can know the future. In fact, that's a major theme of the second half of Isaiah that God is sovereign and he sees the future because he planned the future. And therefore he can reveal the future to his prophet and therefore from him to his people. And so I think that to deny that denies really what scripture is and denies the ability of God to reveal himself to his people. Uh, but also I think, you know, in terms of the change in literary style, the change in vocabulary, I think that can be explained just because it's a different theme. It's a different topic. It's a different prophetic horizon. And, and there could have been 
some time gap in between the first half of Isaiah and the second half of Isaiah. That's not unusual. Um, but I believe it was still written by the, the one man Isaiah of Jerusalem. Uh, I read one commentary today that suggested maybe a better way to think of it is instead of thinking of a, an Isaiah who lived in the 700s and then a different man who lived in the 600s or early 500s that basically borrowed Isaiah's name for the, that section, that second section of the book. He said a better way of thinking of it might be like uh, the analogy of first Timothy and second Timothy. So Paul writes the first letter of Timothy at one point, And then later on, he writes another letter of Timothy and there are different themes. There are different, there's different vocabulary. There's a little bit different emphasis in second Timothy than first Timothy, but they're both by Paul. And so you can have something like that with Isaiah. And then at some point along the way that it was transmitted, it was joined together as one book and has always been handed down from generation to generation as one book. Uh, We have in all of the manuscripts that we have, even with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, any manuscript that we've ever come across of Isaiah, whether it be in Hebrew, ancient Hebrew, uh, Greek, Latin, any manuscript of Isaiah has always had it together as unity. There's never been a manuscript discovered that had like a first Isaiah and a second Isaiah that were separate. So I see it as written by one person. Could be different times. You know, there could be a little time gap there between the first half that he wrote, the second half. But I believe Isaiah is responsible for this whole prophecy. And I believe in that the that predictive prophecy is very capable uh, of happening by the revelation of the Lord. So we do that. We do have this shift in theme from Assyria to Babylon. And also uh, another major shift is kind of in the mood of Isaiah. The first part of Isaiah is much more of an emphasis on judgment with some rays of light and hope sprinkled in there. The second part of Isaiah is almost the opposite of that. There there are passages that deal with judgment and God's uh, chastening of his people, but many, many more visions of hope and of God blessing and, and rescuing his people in the future. And the main reason for that is because the, the time horizon for the second part of Isaiah is after the captivity of Babylon. So they go into captivity in Babylon, but then a large part of this part of Isaiah is about God rescuing his people out of that captivity in Babylon and bringing them back home. And so it's very much more of a hopeful, restorative message in this part of Isaiah. And so we're going to begin to look at it tonight in chapter 40. And really chapter 40 kind of sets the groundwork for the rest of it. It's kind of an introductory chapter. And some of the themes that will show up often throughout the rest of the book come up here in chapter 40. And so the main theme of this is that God's people are coming home. In the first half of this chapter, we see that God will lead his people home. God will lead his people home. Chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. And then we see God comforting his people in verses 1 and 2. Verse 1 says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her 
that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So I think the, the background for these verses is the people of Israel going into judgment, going into captivity, having suffered under the, the tyranny of Babylon. But now the message of Isaiah is forward-looking, comfort my people. Comfort them, speak softly, speak tenderly to them, speak encouraging words to them, because their time of chastening, their time of punishment is over. It's been fulfilled. Uh, their, their punishment for their sins has been finished. And that last part where it says that she's received double for all of her sins, one way of understanding that is just that this is the idea of completion, that that fully all that the Lord intended to bring in chastisement against his people has been fulfilled. Not, I don't think it would be right to understand it in the sense of whatever their sins deserved, God gave them double. I don't think that's necessarily the sense of what's meant there. Sometimes the idea in, in Hebrew literature, in Hebrew figures of speech, is that double something is just the, the fullness of it or the the perfection, the completion of it. And that may be one, one way of understanding it here. But their punishment is over, so God is speaking tenderly to them of what he's going to do uh, for them in rescue. Verses 3 through 8 talk about God revealing his glory to his people. God is going to demonstrate his glory to his people. So as he blesses them, as he brings them out of captivity... As he brings them home to Jerusalem, it reveals his glory, shows how great that he is. He will prepare a way. Verse 3, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Those words sound familiar to you. It's because they're quoted in the New Testament in the context of John the Baptist. And so John the Baptist is viewed by the New Testament writers as the ultimate fulfillment of these words. And what was John the Baptist's role? It was to prepare the way, wasn't it? But for Jesus of Nazareth, for the Son of God. And so John the Baptist is coming ahead of, preparing the way, preaching a message of repentance, baptizing those who repent, and he is preparing the way for the coming of the Messiah and really introduces the, the Messiah to the world. And so he's making that, that way straight and, and level. The, the language here is you have to think of the, the setting in which Isaiah is speaking this because the, the topography of Judea, especially around Jerusalem, was very rugged. It was very mountainous. In fact, uh, to go from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and by the way, anytime you see in the Bible, they went down somewhere, they're literally going down. We speak of going down as going south or going up as going north, but in the Bible, when they go up somewhere, they're, they're climbing up. And when they're going down, they're, they're going down the mountain. So to go from Jerusalem down to Jericho is about 15 miles, but it's about 3,100 feet in elevation difference. So 
little bit easier of a path from Jerusalem to Jericho, but to come back, basically you're hiking uphill for 15 miles, gaining 3,100 feet elevation in the process. That's a, that's a pretty hard journey to make. And, and so Isaiah is saying, we're going to flatten that out. We're going we're gonna to flatten out those mountains. We're going to make those curvy paths around the hills straight. It's going to be like an I-20 interstate instead of these you know, curvy paths up and around and, and over rocks and hills. It's the idea of just making things a, a clear, straight, easy path for his people. Uh, every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. It's the idea of leveling it out. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And again, I think, you know, when we read the prophets like Isaiah, I think it's helpful to see stages in its fulfillment uh, or partial fulfillment, full fulfillment later on. I think we can see that that the partial fulfillment of this is after the captivity when God is making a way for his people to come home. He is, he's bringing them back home again. He's preparing the way to journey from Babylon back to Jerusalem. But we see also that these words are applied to the time of Jesus and John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus to come to his people. And, and the glory of the Lord certainly was revealed in delivering his people from Babylon even more revealed in the glory of Jesus Christ coming, right? John 1, uh, 14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so God revealed His glory in the deliverance of His people from Babylon, but even more so in the coming of Christ. And this will be a time of encouragement for God's people, for those who are discouraged. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field, which basically means we, we pass away quickly, right? So we fade, we go away as quickly as grass grows and then browns and then dies. That's like us. And even like our word, like our faithfulness. You can't even count on us a very, very much because it just ebbs and flows. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. Now, a lot of times when we quote Isaiah uh, 46 to 8 and talking about the endurance of the word of God, the faithfulness of the word of God, a lot of times we have uh, the whole Bible in, 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 our th- in our thinking. And we think that Isaiah is sp- talking about all the word of God as being uh, faithful, as being uh, enduring forever. And certainly that is true. But what Isaiah is focusing on, what he's emphasizing in this particular passage is the faithfulness of the word of God specifically in relationship to these promises. That God, when he speaks and he says, I'm going to rescue you, that will be fulfilled. Unlike our word, that we often fail on our word and we can't fulfill what we promise, God's word cannot fail. He will bring them home to safety 
he will fulfill his word. And so God is going to reveal his glory. And his coming is going to be amazing. Verse 9, you who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. And so here is God. Uh, and the, the view is of good news being proclaimed, of the Lord coming and glory, of the Lord coming to rescue his people, of the Lord tenderly shepherding his sheep like a flock. We see that described in Psalm 23. We also see it described of Jesus in John chapter 10, don't we? That he is the good shepherd who calls his sheep by name and they know him and they follow him and he gives them eternal life. And so this is the God who comes on behalf of his people. So the first part of this chapter is about God leading his people home. By the way, every time I read these verses, even as I was reading them tonight, I almost wanted to start singing because of the Messiah. Have, have any of you ever heard the Messiah, George Friedrich Handel, the Messiah? You, if you have never listened to that whole presentation, you need to. It, it is every single word of it. Every, every word is scripture. And just going through the Bible, talking about uh, the Messiah from the promises, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ultimate reign in glory. And uh, almost all of Isaiah 40, at least a huge part of it, is set to music in, in the, the Messiah. And so I'm reading these verses and I'm thinking of the tune that goes along with it in the Messiah. But it, it's a wonderful piece of music and uh, incredible theology. If you think about the biblical theology, the way that he weaved these uh, scriptures together uh, to create kind of that flow of the story of the Messiah. Very, very, uh, some good theology in the way that he connected those verses together. Um, anyway, that's a, that was a free comment. But I would encourage you to, to listen to that at some time. And so we have in the second part of this chapter then a description of God's wisdom and his power. God's wisdom and his power. And so we see God as a wise creator in verses 12 through 17. God is a wise creator. And there are 10 questions that Isaiah asks in rapid succession to, to communicate the idea of God's ability to create the universe and his infiniteness and our finiteness. And these questions, the, the answers to the questions are obvious, and that's the point. It, it drives the point home. And just the, the quick succession of the questions just intensifies how great our God is in his creative work. And so he says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? So just imagine the word pictures that Isaiah is doing here. Imagine every ounce of water on this planet in the hollow of God's hand. 
That's what he means by that. Or the, the breadth of the heavens, the universe, right? Stars and planets and galaxies with his hand. Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket? Okay, every single grain of dirt, every single grain of sand, whole world, and God's holding it in a, in a bucket. Or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance. It's beautiful pictures, isn't it? Just how, how infinite God is. Because he's talking about these immense things in our world that we can't even begin to comprehend how big, how, how much volume these things have. And he's saying God can just pick these things up and put them in his hand. Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him or, and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? If that sounds familiar. It's because Paul quotes it in Romans chapter 11. When Paul is bringing his great section on the sovereignty of God and the way he works out salvation history in Romans 9 through 11, he, he goes back to Isaiah and rattles off these questions. To show how mighty, how great God is and the way that he has planned and orchestrated all of this saving work that he has done in Christ. And so God is, he's a mighty creator. And he is beyond comprehension. And his power dwarfs the nation's power. That's, that's one of the reasons why this is so encouraging to the people of God. Because Assyria seems so strong. Babylon, that is now usurping Assyrian power and Babylon's going to be even stronger than Assyria. And they're just, it's a huge, mighty empire. And Isaiah is going to tell them all oh, the, the greatest powers on earth, all of these nations, they're nothing in comparison to God. Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They're regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. It's interesting, isn't it? He, go, he takes some of the same images that he was talking about God's creative power, and now he compares it to the nations. So he can put the whole, all of the oceans and all of the seas in the palm of his hand, and now the nations are compared to a drop in a bucket. All of the, all of the dirt, all of the sand from the whole world, God can hold in a bucket and the nations are like the dust on a scale that you would blow off. That really is inconsequential to weighing something. It just, it doesn't even matter. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor it's animals enough for burnt offerings. Uh, in other words, all the trees of Lebanon would not be sufficient uh, for, to, to make altars. All, all of the animals that you could find in Lebanon would not be sufficient enough to get all the sacrifices. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. It's just, God is so immense. And these nations that you're so afraid of, they're a drop in the bucket. They're a piece of dust that you just blow away. And he is beyond comparison. God is beyond comparison. With whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? 
And again, that, that's been the besetting sin of Israel, hasn't it? Idolatry. Breaking the first commandment, the second commandment. Bowing down before idols made of human hands. Bowing down before the idols of the Canaanites, the Assyrians, the Babylonians. And Isaiah is asking the question, who, which of these idols, which of these images can you compare with this God that I am describing? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it. A goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. It's it's just, he's comparing the God of the universe who holds the waters in his hand and the nations in like a piece of dust on a scale. He's comparing that to a piece of wood that's this tall or this tall or a piece of, of metal that's this tall that, that a human being has made. It's all turned up on, his, on its head, isn't it? Here's the God who made everything, and now you're bowing down and worshiping something that was made by man. It's just, it's all upside down. It doesn't make sense. And Isaiah is trying to show the ridiculousness of it. God is the sovereign. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He... Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel, he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. And its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. By the way, don't let anybody ever tell you that the Bible writers thought that the world was flat. Right? God sits above what? The circle of the earth. The biblical writers understood they're not necessarily writing with from a 21st century standpoint of astronomy or physics, but they what they wrote is true. And, and when they talk about the sun setting or the sun going down or the sun coming up, people criticize the biblical writers for that as if they have no sense of what's happening. We speak like that all the time. We say the sun goes down. We say the sun comes up. We know that it's actually the earth rotating on its axis, but we don't talk like that. Well, the biblical writers don't have to talk like that either. They can use normal everyday speech and literary uh, figures of speech to talk about what they see. They don't have to necessarily describe it in terms of scientific terms. But they understood their world, and, and God revealed their world to them. And he's talking about the Lord here, and he is above the earth. He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. The people, just like little grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy, spreads them out like a tent to live in. The whole universe is like a pop-up tent for God. Have you ever flown in an airplane? And some of you have, some of you haven't. But if you take off in an airplane and you look out the window, you can see the cars in the parking lot progressively get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And you look down and it's like these little matchbox cars, you know, sitting there in this parking deck. Now imagine the Lord looking down from heaven on all the people of the earth. Grasshoppers is probably actually pretty generous, probably more like little tiny ants, even smaller than that. God is, he's infinite. He brings princes to naught. 
He reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. These powerful nations, he can bring them down. Not too powerful for God. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. Nebuchadnezzar, he's gone. Doesn't matter. God is, he's more powerful. To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal? Says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. So we don't even know how many stars there are. We can we, we guesstimate at how many stars we think there are or how many stars at least we think that we can see with our telescopes that we have now. We have no idea. God knows the precise number. Not only does he know the precise number, he knows each and every one of the names that he has assigned to them. And because of his great power, they stay where they are. How does this universe hold together? God holds it together. Colossians 1.17, by the power of Jesus, all things consist. Hebrews 1, verse 3, he upholds all things by the very word of his power. So it's because of God that the universe exists. It came into being and continues to exist by the power of God. God is Israel's source of strength. This God, now connect everything we've been saying about the power of God, the wisdom of God, this, this God who creates the heavens, the universe, the oceans, the mountains, the hills. This God, Israel, is your strength. That's what Isaiah wants them to understand. Jacob has forgotten God's strength. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. They had become discouraged, thought that the Lord had abandoned them, and thought that the Lord was not going to come to their aid. They had forgotten what the Lord had done for his people. They had forgotten the promises that he had made to his people. But Isaiah is reassuring them that the all-wise God will not fail them, and he doesn't get tired. He won't fail. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. His understanding no one can fathom. You never have to worry about waking God up, right? If you wake up in the middle of the night and you're anxious and you have concerns and you have worries and you pray to God, you're not waking God up. God doesn't get tired. God doesn't sleep. God doesn't slumber. He is always on duty. 24 hours a day, seven days a week for eternity. You cannot outwork God. You cannot make God tiresome or weary. He gives strength to the weary. He increases the power of the weak. So people are con constantly relying on the power of God. They're drawing strength from God, power from him, and God never runs out of strength. Israel needs to hope in the Lord. So stop 
Doubting and start trusting. Start hoping. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. This is in comparison to God now, remember? So God doesn't get tired. God doesn't get weary. Your young men, your, your athletes, the ones who are in the best shape of their lives, in the prime of their life, even they get tired. But God doesn't get tired. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. And they will walk and not be faint. What is this all in the context of? We all, we all know Isaiah 40, 31, don't we? We've all quoted Isaiah 40, 31. We, probably for some of us, it's one of our favorite verses. But what, what's it in the context of? It's in the context of Israel's discouragement and being feeling like they had been rejected by God. And being under oppression and tyranny and wondering if God was ever going to come to their aid. And Isaiah, throughout this whole chapter, is reminding them, your God is powerful. He is strong. There is nothing in this universe that can stop him from what he wants to do. And his word is faithful. Unlike the faithfulness of our promises, God's promises are faithful. So you put those two things together. Nothing can defeat God's power and his will. And God never reneges on his promises. You put those two things together, and Isaiah is saying, Israel, you've got something to hope about. Because God will not fail you. He can't fail you because his power is strong enough that he will deliver, and he won't fail you because he has promised that he won't. So, hope. Wait. Trust. Uh, that's the hard part, isn't it? Because from the standpoint of when Isaiah's writing this and throughout much of the captivity, and you're, they're, they're wondering when, right? When? When is God going to come to our aid? When, when is he going to deliver us from this bondage? When are we going to be restored to our land? When is this going to happen? And that's where the trust part comes in, doesn't it? That's where the wait, the hope Uh, Paul says in Romans that we hope for things that have not yet arrived, right? So we continue to hope in them because they're still coming. But that's where God calls us to. He calls us to hope and to faith.